This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I am Pam Barnhill, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining me here today. Well, today's conversation has been a long time in coming. I'm getting to chat with Brandy Venzel, who, as many of you know, is a really good friend of mine. And ever since Your Morning Basket, the podcast, was just kind of a long list of topics, we have had this topic on our list of things to do, and I knew Brandy was the person I wanted to come and chat with me about it. The idea is teaching with ideas. Don't you love that? The idea is ideas. And for a long time in my head, this topic was facts versus ideas. But Brandy has corrected me and said, no, no, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Even though one of the hallmarks of a Charlotte Mason education and a lot of what we do in morning time is teaching with ideas, it doesn't necessarily mean we're doing this and eschewing the facts. They actually work in combination, but we're focusing more on the ideas. And that's something we're doing in our morning time reading, our morning time narrations, and our morning time conversations. So I stand corrected. It's not facts versus ideas, but instead teaching with ideas. It was a fun and fascinating conversation, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Venzel blogs at Afterthoughts, and she's also the author of Start Here, A Journey Through Charlotte Mason's 20 Principles. She is a member of the Ambleside Online Auxiliary, and she has homeschooled her four children using the Charlotte Mason method for over 12 years. In season one of Your Morning Basket, Brandy joined us to discuss reading aloud during morning time. And during the course of that interview, she touched on the concept of facts versus ideas, how living books can help us spark our children's interest and imagination by pairing factual information with these big ideas. And so she joins us today to continue that conversation. Brandy, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm just really happy you're here. So (laughs) it's always so much fun to talk to you. Well, when we use the term idea in this context of this whole kind of facts and ideas thing, what do we mean? What is a living idea? So you're basically starting off with, you know, a question that philosophers can't answer. (laughs) But I expect you to answer it. (laughs) So go ahead. So naturally, when you told me the topic, I, I looked in Charlotte Mason's volumes to try to figure out how she defined ideas because I felt like, yeah, I'm really... You know, if Plato has a hard time with this, then um, I can't cut it. <laughs> so I l- looked at it. Okay, so in volume six, she kind of talks about it. It uh, talks about the idea as by talking around it. So she says things like it inspires us or it seizes us or it impresses. You know, we say, oh, I had an idea. And we think of the light bulb over the head, right? And it starts to kind of change the way we think about everything. So she doesn't really define it. She just talks about what it's like. So then I looked in volume one and in volume one, she actually had a pretty long passage. So I had it ready for today. If you don't mind me reading part of it. No, not okay? at all. Right. So she says, well, first she starts with the dictionary definition. So the dictionary basically talks about it being the image or picture that the mind forms of anything outside of the mind. But then she goes on and she says, an idea is more than an image or a picture. 
It is, so to speak, a spiritual germ endowed with vital force, with power that is to grow and to produce after its kind. It is the very nature of an idea to grow. And I'll skip a little bit. And then she says, we know from our own experience that let our attention be forcibly drawn to some public character, some startling theory. And for days after we are continually hearing or reading matter, which bears on this one subject, just as if all the world were thinking about what occupies our thoughts. The fact being that the new idea we have received is in the act of growth and is reaching out after its appropriate food. This process of feeding goes on with peculiar avidity in children in childhood and the growth of an idea in the child is proportionally rabid, <laughs> like the rabid part at the end. <laughs> so again, we just have that idea that it's this thing and it captures our attention and it changes everything for us. And, and so we don't actually have a definition. How's that? <laughs> okay. So it's this thing that captures our attention. And what was that last part you said again? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is the blind leading the blind. Here. Yeah, really? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think I said it's this thing it that captures, our, captures attention. our attention and it causes us to grow. It motivates us. Like it's almost like, well, to a bad analogy, which is the only one I have, would be almost that it's like this cancer in the sense that it kind of like takes over. You know how cancer like hijacks your body Mm -hmm. and starts. So I feel like the way she's describing it is kind of like that. Only this is a good thing, not a bad thing. But it's like it takes over your whole mind. So she's saying, I thought this was interesting, where she's saying that like, you know, we hear an idea and then we feel like we see it everywhere. And so we're thinking, oh, wow, everybody else is kind of seeing this idea. She kind of is saying that's always been there. It was just that when we finally got the idea, our eyes were opened up and now we can see it. Okay, so this just opens up a whole new can of worms because, don't you just love my colloquialisms, Um, (laughs) because you cannot force feed a child ideas. Right. They're going to have to. This Nor a can of worms, by the way. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) You get a big fight. But... um, they're really, this is by this definition that you're giving me, this non-definition that you're giving me from Charlotte Mason. It, so it's not like you could sit down and you're, you can say, okay, well, we're gonna, I'm going to teach the kids about loyalty or I'm going to teach the kids about patriotism or I'm going to teach the kids because this is kind of what I was thinking when I was thinking of ideas. And so it's almost like you can't moralize about any of these things. You can't push any of these things down their throat. You've just got to present this to them and either they grab onto that idea or not. But by this definition, it has to be something that they're just extremely interested in and that kind of consumes their thoughts. Right. Which I think is why she has this idea throughout her books of education being this feast. And so you're setting the table, but you can't, it's sort of the whole bring a horse to water thing. You can bring them, but you can't make them drink. She has the same kind of thing where you set the table. And so everybody gets exposed to the same food, but you never know who's really going to take what and who's really going to digest what and who's going to want more of what dish. And, you know, it's kind of like gambling (laughs) after that. You can't (laughs) predict the outcome. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. So yeah, that's kind of like, you know, when you come into these conversations and you think you've got it all figured out and you know exactly what you're going to talk about and then you realize, yeah, you don't. Right. I didn't know how many bad analogies I had till we started talking. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay. All right. (laughs) But so Charlotte Mason does say, though, okay, well, let's kind of skip to this one. The phrase facts versus ideas could imply that 
the two things are opposed to one another. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about here, right? Right. So I talk about the relationship between facts and ideas. I think they complement each other. And I wrote a post a couple of years ago. I think it was for the Scalay sisters back when it was a blog. But I feel like I gave people the impression that I was kind of anti-facts. And it's totally not true. I just think I've seen the danger of focusing too much on facts. And so in that particular post, which I probably could find for you, but I was trying to offer a bit of correction to the pendulum, if that makes sense. But I think with facts, we have like we have the bare bones of let's say, well, let's say we're reading a a really great history story. So we have the facts will be like the bare bones of what happened, what is. So it's all true. But if I just read you kind of an encyclopedia version of, you know, so so so-and-so did such and such on this date in this year, and that's kind of the extent of it. Like those are the facts and those are all true and they're all important, but they're not really that compelling. You know, reading that isn't really going to change my life, most likely. So I think facts don't really touch the heart. And so if I was to talk about the idea of courage or justice without any facts, though, I would hardly make sense, right? Because it's all too nebulous. It's like trying to define an idea. What I'd have to move to, I had to move to examples (laughs) because it's just so totally nebulous that it's hard to nail down what it even means. And I think all of these things that we think of as virtues are kind of like that. Like if I just tried to describe courage without any facts or any examples, it's not really going to make any sense. And that also probably wouldn't be very compelling. Well, you just fall into moralizing, honestly. True. That's so true, which is probably anti-motivation for kids, I think. (laughs) So I think that what a good story does, you know, a history story, let's say it's a real story. So we have real facts here, but it is unifying the facts and the ideas together. So it's communicating the most important thing, which are the ideas, right? So that act of courage, that's a fact in history happened because of this underlying virtue, all these underlying ideas that compelled the the hero to do the amazing thing. But it's clothed in this story and it includes all the incidental facts that tether that story to the earth. And that's why, you know, a well-written biography can be so compelling. It's got all the facts correct, but it's also compelling because the story incarnates all of these bigger ideas. So to me, it's like, The ideal is always to have both. And so I guess where you want to correct the pendulum is that you don't, you know, when we rely so much on these facts and when we spend all of this time memorizing these facts or drilling these facts or testing on these facts at the detriment of the ideas, then we've, you know, we're just laying out the bland food. We're not spreading a feast at all. Right. I used to have this talk I gave on memory. I guess I still give it every once in a while, but on memory work. And I would have parents come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I don't really have time for, you know, poetry and scripture list over because we have to learn these, you know, umpteen million timeline facts and geography facts and all of that. And I just felt like, let's turn this on its head and do all the great things in context first. Like, let's do the let's do the scripture and let's do the poetry and let's do the great speeches. And then if we have time left over, yeah, let's do, you know, I always make sure I've got time for my math facts. I, You know what I mean? Like right. those things are important, but let's kind of switch our priorities to make sure that most of what they're memorizing are things that are in context and actually in live in the mind. And contain these ideas. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about not what an idea is, because you've told us that you can't help us there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Unless you want more nonsense, I can find some. (laughs) But 
let's give some examples of what we might be talking about. And we've touched on this a little bit already. We've said, you know, courage and justice and and things of that nature. But let's let's give a few more examples. And I know that like in our conversation before, we were talking about like geography books and men of the Mississippi. So could you pull out a few other examples of what are ideas that are maybe not even necessarily virtues, but well, I think I think it changes as kids are different ages. So I just finished planning ninth grade for my oldest child. And I was trying to think about, you know, what are some of the ideas that are in this particular year of school that we planned? And I would say, I mean, there are things like, where does law come from? Or money theory, actually, of all things, you know, what is money? How does it work? What is economics? And how does that work? I mean, it's actually really some big, more adult sort of ideas this Mm -hmm. year. We've had years where I felt like, the focus was kind of on leadership. So what does a good king or a good leader look like? What does it look like to lead well? And so that would involve courage, but it would involve a lot of other things also. Like I remember, goodness, I, I want to say it was one of our first years, but we had just been reading all these stories of British kings. And at the end of the year, for me, the big idea I took away that I'd never thought of before was that the distinguishing mark of these, all of these different kings was basically, you could strip away almost all of their qualifications and, you know, how, even how brave or not brave they were, that ultimately it seemed like the good kings were the ones that truly loved their people and their country. And the bad ones all loved something else more, usually themselves, mm-hmm. sometimes money. I didn't set up the curriculum myself and I didn't even go into it looking for that. But I know that at the end of it, that was definitely what our conversations, I just realized at the end of the year, goodness, all of our conversations kind of circled around this idea of, a good king, his love extends outward to his people and his country. And it was just really fascinating. So I think, you know, it's hard to narrow it down because I feel like there's really a whole world out there and every book tends to have multiple ideas. And, you know, we catch different things depending on who we are and what we're right for. And just okay. Changes. So what about some little kid ideas? Because you kind of gave me some good ones there for big kids. But what about little kid ideas? What are some ideas that you see prevalent for younger elementary kids and some of the literature that you've read in the past years? Well, I think with really little kids, I almost try to think about this backwards. So with really small children, let's say six and seven, so really small school-age children, what we read, maybe a lot of Aesop. So we've got courage, but we've got a lot of like hard work, preparing for the future, being honest, you know, understanding that other people are sometimes dishonest. I think is another thing that comes across in a lot of children's books or, you know, what are fairy tales teaching us? They do teach us courage. They'll teach us sacrifice or sometimes they even teach us, you know, what a real princess is. And that's always an interesting thing to think about, you know, why is it so important to distinguish a real princess or something? And I have some theories, but I won't go into it because it'll, it'll totally be a rabbit trail. (laughs) But, you know, or like the Bible stories we're telling, we're really telling our children just the basic questions. Who are you and why are you here? You know, we think of that as being a question that's for grownups because that's what philosophy preoccupies itself with. But I mean, really, that's why we're telling them all of these Bible tales when they're little, because they have to understand that they're getting their basics down. And then I think with like the older elementary, I think we start to flesh out virtues and then also relationships. So what's a good friend? What's a good mm. parent? What's a good husband or a good wife? So we have, you know, the virtues of courage and justice and those kinds of things. But I feel like there's a lot of relational 
stuff that comes up in the types of books that I find myself reading to my elementary students. And I'm, I'm not sure that's an accident because I, as I listen to my children talk, I feel, you know, that's the age where they start to have their little play yard fights, you know, or their they fights with the neighborhood kids and they have to find out, you know, what does it mean to be a good friend? What does it mean to play fair? What does it mean? You know, so I think their books are helping them work that out. Oh, yeah, that's great. That's really great. Well, so when you're reading or previewing a book, how do you discern what ideas are embedded within that book? Because we, we just talked about the fact that you're not going to be able to hit your kids over the head with this. You can't really sit down with a book and say, okay, Johnny's in third grade this year, and we're going to read this book. And so he's going to learn from this book how to be a good friend. You're going to hope that he catches on to that idea. But you know, you can't guarantee that he is and you can't moralize about it. But Anyway, looking at the books themselves, how do you discern what ideas are embedded within the book? Are there any questions you ask yourself or clues that you look for? I do think I'm naturally an ideas person. So I was really, you sent me this question in advance and I was really trying to think about, okay, so what am I actually doing? Because <laughs> I feel like so much of that is subconscious. It's not really a formal process. But I do think there are questions I'm asking myself. So like, I remember when I had all small children asking myself, what the nature of the relationships was between the characters in the picture books, specifically between parents and children. We had a number of very modern picture books that were given to us where it just continually, the theme was the parents were dumb, the children knew more than the parents, and therefore the children had right to be very disrespectful to their parents. Mm -hmm. And so I pretty much categorized those particular books as toxic. (laughs) And they disappeared one night. (laughs) The book fairy came and got them and took them away. (laughs) They were seen no more. (laughs) And so, but I feel like I'm, you know, not that the relationships have to be perfect at all, but I didn't want it to be that we're actually, I'm actually forming my child's view of the world to be that, you know, you're actually smarter than mom and you don't really need her (laughs) to help you navigate the world or something that's, you know, so I look at the relationships, but I don't think it's just the relationship because you know, like I read this fairy tale to my kids the other day, and this prince has been tricked into marrying a troll wife. (laughs) And it's like, you know, I wouldn't get rid of that just because there's this quote unquote, bad relationship. So I think it's also how that bad relationship is framed. Like, is it viewed as bad? Because if the prince marries the troll wife, and this is considered a good thing, then that's a problem. (laughs) You know, and does does good triumph over it and make it right somehow? I think especially with little children. Oh, goodness, what is that? Was it was it Chesterton who said the thing about dragons where it's like I fairy think, tales? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but you know that the dragons are bad because just deep within you, you know that dragons are bad. Right. And that fairy tales aren't telling children that dragons exist. They're telling them that, you know, that they can be fought. They too. can be fought. Yes. So yes. I feel like so we look at the relationships. We also look at, you know, is that fought back against? Is that made right? Or is it at least acknowledged that good, like truly capital G good relationships are good and truly bad capital B relationships are bad, you know, that kind of thing. With stories, I also think it's worth to ask the general question of what, you know, what's the story really about? What messages is it sending? And that's easier with picture books, I think, than the the older the children get, the more complicated it gets. And sometimes the books aren't about one thing. But I think when they're really small, we actually can ask, you know, well, it's about this character doing this thing or whatever. But I also think, you know, what ideas are are taken for granted. Because I think sometimes the ideas in the background are the more dangerous. Like one of the books I was talking about that I I threw away, it was not because there was lying in the book, but it was that it was acknowledged that lying was like necessary and a normal part of human existence in a sort of, you could do this occasionally and that would be fine. 
And so I felt like that wasn't, the book was not about lying, but it was just kind of this underlying acceptance that that was how maybe we might deal with some things in our life. And so I kind of asked the question, you know, what things are assumed to be good or at least okay? What things are assumed to be normal? Because the things that are assumed to be normal, those are like the deep embedded underlying ideas that frame this world that the story is taking place in. And so we have, I think, less of a guard up about those things than we do about what happens in the story. And so, you know, thinking about what kind of world is this story set in? And is that really teaching my child, you know, true things about our world? You know, and I I am specifically talking about younger students. Like I'm not nearly so careful with my high schooler, of course. But when we're talking about, you know, early elementary and younger, I think those kinds of questions are really important. Right. And then as they get older, they can start to, and once you've, you've kind of led them through this period where you've only presented them with those ideas, then they can, you can present them with something that's a little more shades of gray and they can figure out some of the answers to those questions themselves. Right. With with you there kind of along the side. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, I think it's good that the books get a little bit more complicated and it's a little bit hard to articulate because I feel like that, you know, that's real life. Real life isn't always so clear in black and red and white. So even that is preparing that idea that it's kind of hard for me to sort this out. Even that's an idea, I think, that is good for them to have to handle as they're getting older. Right. Okay, so this conversation has really taken a turn of like discernment. But so am I safe in saying that you never sit down and say, okay, this year I'm going to teach these five ideas. And so now I'm going to go seek out books. But you teach the books that you want to teach and then let the ideas speak for themselves. Yes, that's actually true. I'm trying to think. I think I could probably count on one hand the number of times where I actually hunted down a book on a particular topic. And (laughs) the times I did that, I didn't feel like it was very successful. So I've kind of learned to take the opposite approach, at least with my own children. And so I'm really picky about books and I try to present the quote unquote best possible books, especially during our formal lessons times, like circle time and those kinds of things. And then from there, we just try to pull the ideas out. Actually, I think the best books, the ideas come out on their own. Like we don't even really have to force it. So I think by getting the best books, like there's a reason why everybody loves certain books. And so I think by doing that, then everything else kind of happens just organically. It happens naturally because when a human reads a really good book, then things happen. And it's just like a completely normal part of being a person. Do you ever want them to get something that they don't get? And so you're just like, I mean, are you pulling? Are you like trying to hit them over the head with it? Or, you know, are you asking all of these leading questions or do you just let it go? Definitely hitting, hitting over the head. (laughs) (laughs) That was figurative, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think. So I do. And I, okay, so a couple things. First, I would say that I have learned that sometimes I feel like they're not, getting something because I went into circle time with an agenda regarding this book. So I maybe pre-read this story and I decided, which has happened multiple times, (laughs) I decided that I knew what my children should get out of this book. And so then I felt like they were not getting this central idea that was so important to me. And it turned out it was because they were getting some other idea. And so I've tried now to really back off and be careful about assuming failure 
just because the response isn't what I expected, if that makes sense. But definitely there are times when I'm like, this certain connection, it seems pretty important to me. And so that is when I resort to questions. And I don't over question, but I have, you know, and you, I'm sure you've heard these questions. I may have even talked about this last time. I don't remember. But my two favorite questions that I use over and over. So the first one, Wendy Capehart taught to me years and years ago. She's runs the Common Room blog and she's a founding member of Amblesite Online. And so her question is, does this remind you of anything else? And it's very enlightening to hear the connection the child makes between, you know, this story that we just read and some other thing that's lodged in their memory somewhere. And lots of times that gives me a clue as to what the idea is that they're getting. And I think it forces them to move into idea mode if they were just kind of not there yet for whatever reason, because we all know we have off mornings and that kind of thing. And then then the other one is Andrew Kern's famous, famous question of, you know, should X have done Y? And so talking about more what has gone on. And I think sometimes those questions can kind of get really close to the connection you're wanting to see. And so, you know, if you choose the question, which I don't think the question works for every book, but if you choose the question carefully, like the I'm trying to think of a good example, but anyway, I don't have one right now. <laughs> of, the, of, the sh- of the should X have done Y? Right. Oh, yeah. Right. The famous one he uses is should Edward have gone with the white witch? Right. And so you really, you know, if you have a kid that somehow it doesn't seem <laughs> to be connecting, Edward went with the white witch and this was really bad, <laughs> then it seems like a question like that, like you can kind of target it without starting the preaching of, you know, Edward went with the white witch and that was bad, children. He took candy from strangers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you should never do that. Yeah, oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Okay. Well, and that's kind of one of the things. That's a lovely thing about living books is that the whole family can listen to the same story and different family members can latch on to different ideas. So do you have a couple of examples where maybe you've read something to everyone in your family and your kids seem to kind of, or, or maybe even you had one thing in mind and your child came up with something like brilliant. <laughs> that wasn't what you had in mind because I know that these Vinsel children are brilliant. So, <laughs> well, they are smarter than their mother sometimes. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> that's not as hard to do, though. Well, you know, I was thinking something like that kind of happened where, so I am reading aloud a book that I don't know I would recommend for every family. <laughs> Some people might be horrified that I'm reading this book aloud. But anyway, I'm reading aloud. It's David McCullough's The Johnston Flood, which is. It's written for adults and it's a story of the famous Johnston flood from the late 1800s. And because I'm like, you know, it's the end of summer and we should read something uplifting like a natural disaster. (laughs) So anyway, I've had this book on my shelf forever. And I finally decided that my youngest child was old enough to at least not completely die from me reading this. And so anyway, so I'm reading it aloud and it had crossed my mind that One of the characters in Rudyard Kipling's Captain's Courageous, which I've read out loud to my children a few years ago, one of the sailors on the boat in that story lost. He's basically like psychologically broken and he lost his entire family in that flood. And that's why he's so broken that he kind of leaves reality because he cannot handle reality. He can't handle that his wife and children are gone. And so... 
you know, none of my children had acted like that part that he's not completely main character in the story and none of them had acted like they really even noticed him that much. I don't remember anybody saying anything about it. So I start reading the Johnston flood and I'm, I'm like in the first chapter and it's not even really gotten that interesting. Like at this point, I'm questioning my, my wisdom in choosing this book. And all of a sudden, my nine-year-old daughter, who was only five or six when I read Captain's Courageous, said, remember that book about the guys on the boat and that man lost all of his children? And was it a flood like this? <laughs> and I'm like, it was this flood. This is the story of what happened to his family. Wow. You know, and her eyes got so big. And But what was interesting was she has two older siblings, so they should be much more able to remember that part of the book. And one of them didn't even remember that after she explained it. And the other one you know, he had to really think. And he's like, oh, yeah, I do kind of remember that guy. But what they had taken away from Captain's Courageous was all sorts of other things about how life transforming hard work was. It kind of in that story takes this spoiled rich kid and makes him a man, really. And so it's like a coming of age. It's a rite of passage. It's all all these things. And they had taken all those kinds of things away from it, but had completely missed this psychologically traumatized person. But my nine-year-old, that's pretty much all she can tell you about the book. <laughs> mm. And so it's just really interesting. But, you know, she, I would say she's my, one of my more empathetic children. And so yeah. I think her heart just kind of went out to this guy and my insensitive older children didn't care about him. <laughs> <laughs> but they got, the whole, you know, they got the whole coming of age thing. <laughs> exactly. So, which they're probably much more interested in this kid who's like closer to their own age and, you know, those kinds of things. So but I, I was thinking, you know, I read this book to everybody. And of course, my youngest child was just too young to even remember this book. But it was interesting how all three of them, as they start discussing the book, you know, only one of them was even able to connect that book to this other book that I'm reading because she was the only one that remembered the incident. So, you know, books are a powerful thing. <laughs> they are. And it's interesting how they speak to us so differently. Well, yes. let's let's talk about like within a lifetime. And so this is a good segue into that because, you know, you have the younger empathetic child who kind of feels for this psychologically broken character. And then you have these other two who you said were probably relating more to the character near their own age. So do you find yourself rereading old favorites and finding new ideas? Oh, yes. In fact, I I found myself pondering, can I just continually reread Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and that would be okay? (laughs) Can I just not read anything else? To my children, for the rest, I love reading the Chronicles of Narnia. I love reading Tolkien's trilogy and then The Hobbit. And so I've read, I mean, that's a lot of pages, but I've read them multiple times out loud to my children. And every time I feel like I noticed something new, I feel like the first time I read through The Lord of the Rings, what I caught in terms, it was like all the stuff that everybody quotes. That's what I caught. And I I remember thinking, that's why everybody quotes this. Like, this is such a powerful moment in the story. And it's... The quote is powerful in itself, but it's so powerful in context, you know. But then the other times I've read through it, goodness, it's like, it's not a different book, but the revisiting, I see other things. Like, I think it took me three readings to connect that the reason why the Shire was this peaceful, safe place is because all these rangers have been protecting it, you know, for generations. And so they have been protected by a power bigger than themselves. And so, you know, they think there's nothing wrong with the world, but it's because someone else was taking care of them. And, you know, I didn't get that through the first reading. And I do the same thing. I reread a lot of um, very specific educational books. Like I'll read through parts of Charlotte Mason volumes or I'll, I've read Norms and Nobility a couple of times. And 
again, it was the same kind of thing where, well, my first reading of Charlotte Mason's volume one, I think I took away one idea. We should go outside. And that was pretty much all I got. She was way over my head. And so then we went outside and I read the book again. And then that time I got a different (laughs) idea. And so it's like, you know, it just keeps building. And I felt like, you know, I could, if each time I could understand a little bit more. And so I don't, I don't think every book is worth rereading, but I definitely think some of the more important books, it's kind of grows with you as you grow as a person, then you get all these new things out of the book again. Right. Yeah. I definitely think that that's the case. Actually, I have kind of a reverse example of that because I never read, and we're not going to talk about the worthiness of this book, but I never (laughs) read Catcher in the Rye as a teen. And, you know, I know that teenagers are supposedly love this book. And so I read it first as a college age student. And I've always been a little older, like, than what my age was. Um, And I just was like, I can't believe people like this book. This kid just needs to be, he needs to be like spanked and sent to his room or something. You know, he's horrible. And then, you know, teenagers love this book. So yeah, I think there's definitely as something as you age and as you grow and as you change and as you mature, then you're going to approach books differently than you did as you know, when you read them when you were younger. That, you know, that is true. I was just thinking about this. So I remember just loving Romeo and Juliet in high school and thinking it was so romantic. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> oh my gosh. I reread it as an adult and I'm like, it's like watching the Titanic. I'm like, you just met him. Yeah. This is stupid. <laughs> more <laughs> more like mad at Shakespeare. <laughs> more people who need to be spanked and sent to the exactly. Oh. oh yeah. Shakespeare's turning in his grave. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're exactly right that that's, there's definitely, it's, I think that makes books totally worth rereading. So, well, most books, like you said, not all of them. So, okay, so you have a child and maybe they're not saying a whole lot during morning time. You know, you read, you narrate, but they're not really discussing the book a lot. I don't know if you've ever had this problem where you have the reluctant to discuss child. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that he or she isn't picking up some of the living ideas from a book that you've just read. So do you think that kids process what things or work through big ideas in different ways? Oh, for sure. I was actually thinking about this. I read Cindy Rollins' new book, Mere Motherhood. Oh, goodness. Was it last weekend or two weekends ago? Anyway, I call it my mental vacation because I read it all in two days and I pretty much did nothing else. And it was so refreshing. Oh, that sounds awesome. Oh, it was so great. But she makes this passing comment in her book about, I don't, she asks a question almost. And I think it was something about, I wonder how many ideas I processed on my walk home from school. And I I was thinking about that, that, you know, we're often so in a hurry to get to the good discussion part. And so, and the good discussion gives us the sense of validation, right? I just did this thing and I need feedback. And I can mark (laughs) it off the list now. Exactly. Discuss Um, the book. Yeah. And so we want these responses right away. And I mean, sometimes we do get responses right away, but it's taken me a long time to let go of that and be content that, you know, the narration is enough and we can wait for later for some of these other things. Because I I do think like if we're reading the very best books and we're narrating them, then the idea is they kind of haunt the mind, like they're sticking around for a long time. So I don't know. I guess I think that processing often takes time. And so this means that we have to wait and the conversations are going to happen later. And 
I do think there's a couple different ways that that comes out. And this is my new theory based on things I've talked with Misty about. And so I'm not 100% positive I'm right. But I think there's a big difference between the processing of introverts and extroverts. Mm. So I had this friend with all these extroverted children and they were acting out all of their school books to the point where I started to feel like maybe I'm doing something wrong. How come my kids aren't acting out all of their school books? You know, <laughs> like Because I started to think in my mind, maybe this is like the number one way to process ideas as a, a young child. But I realized that with introverted children, something like a walk is where this kind of happens. So if I take one child for a walk, which I seriously do not do often enough, but it's like halfway through the walk, they'll start talking about something on their mind. And sometimes it's very related to things we've done in school. Sometimes it's related to things we did in school a year ago, which is really weird. (laughs) But like now that my extroverted children are older, I see things are coming out in their play. And so that got me thinking, well, my two, my first two children are introverts and my second two children are extroverts. And when I was feeling really insecure about things not being in their play, it was both introverted children that I was thinking about. And so I don't know, that's my new theory. I don't know if I'm right, but I think that, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, as an introvert, I know that I process things by having conversations in my head. Mm. You know, that's what I'm doing. And that's why, okay, so true confession time. I know I've told (laughs) some people this, but not a lot of people. I find it difficult to listen to podcasts because it's the podcast is interrupting the conversation that I'm having. (laughs) And so if I spend all of my time listening to podcasts, I can't process my day and break down things and come up Mm -hmm. with new podcast ideas from, you know, my podcast and things like that. And so I'm a podcaster who doesn't really listen. I listen to some, but not nearly as much as like some other people we know. (laughs) And so, (laughs) yeah, so I can't do that. So yeah, I could totally see that. And I could see like my children in front of me and saying, okay, this particular child I know is going to need to sit and think about this. And if I'm immediately jumping on and trying to have a discussion with them about it, they got to have time to process first. Yeah. So hmm. that's been hard for me because even though I can be very introverted, I have never been one to not want to engage in conversation right after I read something because I get so excited. (laughs) And so I really have had to learn to control myself and to give my children time to marinate and to be okay with picking the conversation back up a long time later. That was something I really had to learn. My poor oldest child. (laughs) And two, we have to like, so then we have to learn to trust the educational process that we've set out because you're right. It's not like we're going to mark a time on our calendar two weeks from now to say, go back and discuss, you know, Captain's Courageous again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Chapter three, they've had time to marinate. So now let's go back and discuss it. We've just got to trust the process that we've laid out that that is happening in their head. You know, because we are laying out this feast of wonderful literature, it is happening in their head. They are mulling over these ideas. They are making these connections. And it, it may be something we never hear about. Right. But I do think, as I'm thinking about this, that maybe one key thing I'm thinking, you know, Cindy Rollins has her walk on her way home from school. I do think making sure that there is time in the children's schedule for that processing time, like what you're talking about with the podcasting, getting in the way of the processing. I do wonder if sometimes overscheduled children don't get that chance to process. And so then the conversation should be less likely to happen 
later on because the processing has never really had an opportunity to happen. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking maybe there we need to protect that. I mean, both for introverts and extroverts, right? Because the introvert might need time in the garden by herself, but then the extrovert needs that time to have the imaginative play. Like both of them are doing their processing in their own way, but for both of them, the free time was what was really necessary for that to be able to happen. Right. But it's never something we're going to be able to check off in a neat and tidy no, box. No, never. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So frustrating, huh? <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> so, okay, well, we've kind of touched on this, but you read aloud a book that contains some living ideas, but then what? So we're sitting there in morning time. We've read this book to the kids. Obviously, we know that the first step is narration back to us. And now we're talking about, well, no, you need to let them have time to marinate with these ideas. And so is that it? Or is there anything else we can do? <laughs> I feel like I'm so disappointing. I'm like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> I mean, pretty, pretty much it really is. I mean, like I said before with the questions, I do sometimes think, okay, I'm going to ask a few questions and see if I can get a discussion going here. And I definitely, Plutarch is no longer part of our morning time, but we have a separate Plutarch time as a group set aside. And I definitely ask some questions there. We use Ann White's guides. And so it it just is very natural. And I think they're used to it. And so they've gotten to where they expect to have to interact right after. So I think there's a place for that, especially as kids get older. I figure someday they might have a boss that wants them to like verbally respond to whatever he just said. So (laughs) it might help. Um, Instead of them just staring and thinking, can't you just give me time to think for like a week and I'll come back? But I mean, really... I feel like for most of our circle time, I mean, we just move on to the next thing. So I might have a couple of readings after we've done our memory work and after we've done Bible and all those other things. And I have gotten to where I do trust that it comes later. In fact, I started thinking of this as like a a car. And so I'm putting gas in the car. And so I'm not taking the trip right now. I'm just putting gas in the car so that when they're ready to take their trip, there's something in the car, right? To right. go on. So that's kind of how I'm started thinking about it. And that's been really helpful. And and I've realized that like it's their car and they kind of get to drive it whenever they want for the most part and how they want to. And my job is just to make sure that their little tank is filled up so that there's something to help them go when their little mind gets going. And so that's where I think the narration is. I kind of think of it as like, OK, but they have leaky tanks, right? They've got this <laughs> really stimulating environment and And then there's like the next thing and then there's the next thing. And so I feel like narration is sort of like plugging the holes in the tank. So we're requiring them. We're requiring the first remembrance of them. And so after that, then it's like I've made sure it's in the tank so that maybe they can access that later. (laughs) You know, it's like my insurance policy. And so anyway, that's kind of how I've gotten to where I think of it. And so I do questions sometimes, but for the most part, we do just move on. And I feel like I'm doing it long enough now that I do, I, I'm starting to see little bits of fruit and it's really encouraging. And I don't know that I could have ever made that happen. It's just really beautiful when you work with how God just made the world and how God made a child to function. You know, we can trust that they're persons. And so their little minds really will take ideas and process them and assimilate them in ways that, you know, we can't even imagine. And then as the, as the mother, as the teacher, we're just to get out of the way. Right. Hard to do. (laughs) Oh, wow. So that's cool. Okay. Well, you have given me so much to think about as always. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I will be not listening to podcasts and mulling over this for quite some time now. <laughs> I'm destroying podcast statistics yeah. or whatever. For That's everybody. right. Sorry. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about Thanks that. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. I really thank do appreciate it. And there you have it. Now, the basket bonus for today's episode is really awesome. And I can say that because I had nothing to do with putting it together. It was all brandy. So what it is, is an inventory for idea maximization. So this is a one page printable you can print out and put in your morning time binder. And basically, it's a series of questions for you to ask yourself about a lesson to make sure that you are maximizing teaching with ideas. And I think it's great. I think it's really going to help you cement some of the concepts that Brandy and I talked about today and put them into action or implement them in your morning time. Now you can get the inventory for idea maximization and links to any of the resources or books that Brandy and I chatted about today on the show notes for this episode. You can find those at pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB. 25. We'll have everything for you there. Also on those show notes are directions for how you can leave a rating or review for the Your Morning Basket podcast on iTunes. The ratings and reviews that you leave on iTunes help us get word out about the podcast to new listeners. And we really appreciate it if you've taken the time to do that. Well, you guys have an awesome week. We'll be back again in another couple of weeks with another wonderful Your Morning Basket interview. And until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day.